God rebukes the faithlessness of his people as shown by who they choose to marry and how they break the marriage covenant itself. Happy Chinese New Year, everybody. It should be a fairly quiet day in our city today. Probably one of the, the quietest days of the year. Places that are usually bustling with people have closed down for the holiday. One of those bustling areas of Shanghai I can think of is, is People Square. And then in, in thinking about this sermon, I also, uh, the marriage market in People Square came to mind. I imagine that all the IEs at the marriage market in People's Square are taking this weekend off as well. Instead of looking for a spouse for their child or grandchild, they can spend this weekend with their child or grandchild and quite possibly try to set up their child or grandchild with someone. There was one story, or perhaps it was a video that went viral, of a conversation in the marriage market that went something like this. There was a young man talking with one IE the eye is telling him about her daughter. She's a nurse at a, a good hospital in Shanghai. The IE asks the young man if he owns a house. And he says, well, I own two houses in my hometown. And the IE kind of brushes the comment off. It's like, like well, well, what's that in your hometown? Like, what could I buy in Shanghai? And he says, well, I'm from Beijing. And then she, she kind of uh, catches herself rushes down to write this young man's contact information and continues to tell him how wonderful her daughter is. Now, this Ai obviously has certain things that she prioritizes in thinking of a potential spouse for her daughter. The one is money and then some level of stability. But who knows what her daughter thinks about what her mom is doing. Perhaps the daughter's priorities are, are a bit different. For better or for worse, your parents may have strong opinions when it comes to who you marry. Or if you're married, you can remember the strong opinions they had when you were dating. But for the Christian, does God have something to say in regards to who we choose to marry? And if we're married, does God have something to say in regards to what our marriages should be like? This morning is our, our third in a sermon series in the book of Malachi. We'll be looking at the third disputation in the book. Whereas last Sunday we looked at Israel's lack of fear of God and inappropriate sacrifices, this morning we'll look at Israel's faithlessness to the covenant, specifically in regards to marriage. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. Malachi 2, verses 10 to 16. You can also find it printed in your bulletin. I would guess you've never heard a wedding sermon from this passage, but God does have some clear teaching and rebuke for his people in regards to marriage here. The principles that God lays out here are ones that we need to, to pay attention to, to take heed to 
in our day and age. So please follow along as I read the passage. And as I do, notice why God is rebuking the people of Israel. So Malachi 2, starting in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. If I had to sum up the main point of this passage in one sentence, I would do so in this way. God rebukes the faithlessness of his people as shown by who they choose to marry and how they break the marriage covenant itself. God rebukes the faithlessness of his people as shown by who they choose to marry and how they break the marriage covenant itself. I'll say that one more time. God rebukes the faithlessness of his people as shown by who they choose to marry and how they break the marriage covenant itself. The sermon will have two main points that show the faithlessness of God's people. The first is who God's people choose to marry in verses 10 to 12. The second is how God's people break the marriage covenant in verses 13 to 16. In speaking of the faithlessness of God's people, God specifically points out Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel. This is where Jerusalem and the temple was located. This passage specifically emphasizes Judah's sins. But it's apparent that these sins were being committed by the people of Israel as a whole as well. I would imagine if that those closest to the temple, and, and before we, we saw the sins of the priests, that those sins affect the nation as a whole. So let's begin with our first point, who God's people choose to marry. Who God's people choose to marry. Who Judah chooses to marry displays Judah's faithlessness in God. It would seem that the word faithless in this context is synonymous with how we use the word unfaithful. This first point we'll walk through verse by verse. Look again at verse 10. It reads, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? 
Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Here Malachi asks three rhetorical questions. Have we not all one father? Yes, we do. Has not one God created us? Yes, God is our creator. He created everything and he created our nation. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? In light of who God is, the sin of Israel becomes even clearer. Considering the fact that God is our Father and Creator, Malachi asks, Why is it we are profaning His covenant? In God's role as Father, God has shown continued care and love and patience with His people. It's likely that the reference to God as Creator brings to mind not only His creation as a whole, but also His creation of His people, Israel. If God did not create Israel, there would be no Israel. Now, in considering God's faithful, faithfulness and what is due God as the creator of his people, why is it that Israel continues to sin in this way? Malachi includes himself as well as he is speaking on behalf of his people Israel. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? It's interesting to note as well that here Malachi does not ask, why are we faithless to God? Although that is true. Instead, he first asks, why then are we faithless to one another? The covenant God made was with his people. When more and more Israelites break the covenant, they're not only being faithless to God, they're being unfaithful to one another. They're breaking the covenant that they made together as the people of God. So they sin not only against God, but they're, they're also sinning against one another. God's faithfulness to Israel is displayed in his role as loving father and creator. We're also very clearly reminded of God's faithfulness in loving and choosing Israel in the first disputation in the book of Malachi. And yet despite God's faithfulness, the people of Israel respond with faithlessness. And how is it that Israel is being faithless and profaning the covenant? We get the answer in the next verse. Look again at verse 11. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So what was the sin of Judah? Judah profaned God's sanctuary. Judah profaned God's temple, the place where God was to dwell with his people. And how did Judah profane God's temple? It says that Judah married the daughter of a foreign god. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah give us some helpful background for Malachi's prophecy. Both Ezra and Nehemiah needed to address the sin of Israel in taking foreign wives. Ezra speaks of even some of the sons of priests marrying these foreign women. Notice what is emphasized here, though. The problem is not that these wives are foreigners. There were foreign women in the Old Testament, such as Ruth, who became worshipers of the true God. The problem is that these foreign women's women are the daughters of a foreign god. These women are worshipers of other gods. Once these women marry an Israelite husband, they will continue to worship their own gods and try to get their husbands to worship alongside them. 
over and over again in the Old Testament, their warnings against intermarrying with those from other nations because these people would lead Israel into the worship of idols. Even the reign of wise King Solomon did not end well because his foreign wives turned his heart to the worship of other gods. It says that Solomon's heart did not stay wholly true to the Lord. The people of Judah, the people of Israel, have ignored God's warnings against marrying with foreigners. Now they're back in their land, surrounded by foreign nations, and many, many Israelite men have taken foreign wives. The text doesn't clearly state this, but it's also quite possible that the Israelites were divorcing their wives in order to marry foreign wives. In Israel's rejection of choosing wives within the covenant people, they also displayed a rejection of God. They rejected God's commands and they chose to prioritize the wrong priorities in looking for a spouse. Perhaps at that time it would be beneficial financially for an Israelite man to marry a foreign wife. Perhaps some of the Israelite men simply found a foreign wife attractive as, Solom as Samson did in the book of Judges. But whatever the case, Israel is rejecting God's covenant by taking foreign wives. God had warned Israel not to intermarry, that the women who worship foreign gods would lead the Israelites astray. But the people of Israel are, are simply not willing to listen. Just as the Israelites were to marry other worshipers of the one true God, the scriptures teach that Christians are to marry other worshipers of the one true God. For example, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yes, there is freedom, but, but this man also must be in the Lord. This man the Christian woman wishes to marry also must be a Christian. The week before last, I, I had lunch with a non-Christian friend of mine, a, a lawyer, who I knew back from when he was a grad student. He, now, he brought his colleague with him. At one point, my friend, who already has a girlfriend, started to tell me that, oh, his colleague is single. If I know any single woman who might be interested, this young man has a good, steady job. But then my friend stopped for a second and remembered something and asked me, oh, but there's a problem, isn't there? Christians only marry Christians, right? And I told him, yes, that Christians only marry Christians. And my friend's lawyer colleague jumped in and said, well, my mom is a Christian, so that kind of makes me half a Christian. And I looked at him kind of funny, and I'm like, well, there's not really such thing as half a Christian. If he's telling me that he's not a Christian, but his mom is, then it sounds like he's not a Christian. And just, we just continued to discuss a little bit that, that being a Christian for us is the most important aspect of our identity. It's going to affect everything in our lives, from what we do on weekends to how we raise our children. And I think that when God is first in our lives, perhaps even the non-Christian friends around us may begin to realize why Christians only marry Christians. The most important thing in marriage for us is in every other area of life is worship of God. Christians want to find a spouse who will help them worship God, who will help them grow in holiness, and who will remind them of the truth of God's word. So it's sad to see in our churches 
how often Christians are willing to date non-Christians. Perhaps the Christian is trying to justify this kind of behavior to himself or herself, but often our, our reasoning is quite faulty. If dating is for the purpose of discerning whether or not you should marry this particular person, then it would seem strange to begin dating someone you know that you cannot marry. The novelty of dating and being liked by another person can be fun and can tempt you to both forget the purpose of dating and the purpose of marriage. One date leads to more dates, and the inertia of dating might make it more and more tempting for a Christian finally to break God's clear command in the scriptures by marrying a non-Christian. This is such a sad thing because it shows that, that many professing Christians want to push God to the side of the most important human relationship in his or her life. There are lots of excuses that Christians dating non-Christians make, but we need to bring these professing Christians back to what God's word teaches and back to considering what truly is most important in a marriage. There's a book on the book table list. Maybe we'll get it again soon as things have been opening up called Sacred Marriage. This book helps us see from the scriptures that marriage is for the purpose of growing one another in holiness. So as a Christian, don't you want a spouse who will want you to become more like Jesus and encourage you to become more like Jesus? Don't you want a spouse who you can continue to discuss God's word, word with and pray together when you're old and gray-haired? And also remember, as an aside, remember the focus of this warning is Christians who are choosing to marry non-Christians. So, so this is different than someone becoming a Christian after they are already married. The New Testament teaches that if someone becomes a Christian after they are married, they are to continue faithfully in that marriage, expecting that their spouse is also willing to continue. Now at this point, I, I want to stop and commend and encourage a, a particular group within the membership of WSBC. And that is the single woman at WSBC who have been waiting, who have decided they will not marry or, or even date a non-Christian. Sisters, you've been faithfully waiting for a godly Christian man, even when perhaps your parents and the culture around you don't understand why you would wait. So thank you for your example of faithfulness. The kind of person you marry truly is more important than, than when you get married or if you get married. You're waiting on God as a display of faith. It may feel like a, a long and hard wait. One can think of the years that Abraham and Sarah waited for a son, and they were past the age when it would technically be possible for them to have a son. And yet God was so gracious in giving them a son. Your single years are a unique time in which you can use the time God has given you to be a blessing to others. And many of you are doing that in the ways that you serve in the church and invest in one another. Whether single or married, our, our goal of honoring God and all that we do remains the same. Getting married isn't simply for the purpose of, of getting married. It should be with the idea that, that this person will encourage and build you up in the faith. So if you're a Christian single woman, please do continue to wait for a Christian man who takes Ephesians 5 seriously, who will seek your holiness by washing you in the water of God's word, and who will seek to love you as Jesus loves the church. 
And sisters, continue to trust in God's good care for you. God is working for your good, even when at times we might not understand why current circumstances are the way they are. Now let's look at verse 12. Verse 12 reads, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Notice how this curse from God is stated. Israelites who take foreign wives and are thus led to worship foreign gods are still bringing offerings before the Lord of hosts. Not only are the Israelites bringing sick and lame animals in sacrifice, as we considered last week, but Israelites, Israelites who have disobeyed God's law by marrying foreigners are still bringing sacrifices before God. They're, they're acting like nothing is wrong. To the Israelites who do these things, who sin in this way, continue to bring offerings before God, they and their descendants should be cut off from Israel. A foreigner who worships the true God can be welcomed into the people of Israel. But Israelites who worship false gods should be cast out from the people of Israel. How can they continue to say that they are God's people if they're worshiping false gods? God's people are meant to be different. God makes a clear distinction between who are the people of God and who are not. And so these marriages with, with women who are worship other gods is, is blurring the distinction. It's making it harder and harder to see that the people of God are any different from the people around them. In fact, when the people of God join in idolatry, they look just like the people around them. So in order for God's people to continue to witness to God's name clearly, it would be better for the descendants of these mixed marriages to be cut off from the people. Just as the Israelites at that time did not think marrying foreign wives was that much of an issue, so many Christians today think that marrying non-Christians is much of an issue. But the way the Lord phrases this curse should cause us to pause and consider the seriousness of this sin. Not only will God not accept the offering of the Israelites who do this, but God says that they should be cut off from the people. So God takes who we decide to marry very seriously. In the new covenant, we're still to marry within the covenant. God's people are still to marry God's people. That brings us to the end of our first point, who God's people choose to marry. The second point is how God's people break the marriage covenant. The second point is structured with the opening statement, the Israelites' question, and God's response and further explanation. It's here in our passage this morning that we see the, the structure of the disputation that we talked about seeing in Malachi before. Please look again with me at, at verse 13. It reads, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Perhaps you can see now why this sermon is split into two points, as Malachi clearly states, and the second thing you do. And what is it that the Israelites are doing? They're weeping and groaning before God's altar, because God does not regard or accept their offering. Now it would appear that the Israelites are copying the worshipers of foreign gods around them. You may recall that when Elijah faced off with the priests of Baal, the priests of Baal were crying out, they were cutting out themselves with swords, they were openly and loudly displaying their emotion to their God. Perhaps Baal would hear them if they yelled louder, 
if they were in more pain. And it seems that the Israelites think that God will hear them with their weeping and groaning. But God is not swayed by their emotion. If you, if you have children or, or even if you just spend a little time observing the kids or helping out with childcare, you get to see the difference between fake crying and real crying. Real crying gets a response from the parents and fake crying might simply just get raised eyebrows. God is looking at the hearts of his people and, and not simply the quantity of the tears. And yet the Israelites do not understand why the Lord doesn't accept their offerings. Look at the question they ask in verse 14. But you say, why does he not? The Israelites don't get it, so God has to explain. And God answers their question and continues to expand on his answer from the middle of verse 14 until the end of verse 16. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. In verse 16, we have this picture of God being the witness to the marriage covenant that the Israelite men had made with their wives. In this section, there are several terms used to describe the wife. One is the wife of your youth. Another is your companion. And another is your wife by covenant. Now at that time, the Israelites would have been betrothed to their wives from a very young age. The marriage was arranged between families and, and once they were married, they, were, they of course were to remain faithful to their wife. Notice also that it says that your wife is your companion. This is a term that reflects the equality of the wife in her role as companion and a partner. A companion is someone who comes alongside to help, not, not someone who is lesser than the other. And the wife by covenant, the covenant that the Israelites made with their wives was a covenant that God witnessed, a covenant that must be kept. In this covenant, the man and the wife become one. They're made into a union. That is what we see from the very first marriage with Adam and Eve. Furthermore, God speaks of what God desires from these marriages. God desires godly offspring. The husband and the wife are to be faithful to each other in order to keep their promise before God. And also for the sake of raising children who worship God. If God chooses to, to bless their marriage with children. God's design for a husband and a wife is, is that they raise their children in a way that honors God. For these reasons, God gives the command at the end of verse 15. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. This command is repeated again at the end of verse 16. And before that, we're given another reason for this command in verse 16. It says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Notice here that divorce is, is contrasted with loving your wife. Divorce is, is not a loving thing to do. 
And for the Israelite men who were divorcing their wives, they were covering their garments with violence. This is an interesting phrase, covering your garment with violence. And it's difficult to know exactly what it may be referring to. It is possible that it's pointing out a contrast between covering a garment and protection in marriage, as Boaz did for Ruth with the protection being replaced by and contrasted with violence. It's also possible that it's pointing out that the implications of divorce or that it puts the divorced wife in a weak and vulnerable position in society that opens up the possibility of violence done against her. Whatever case, whatever the case, divorce is thought of by God as an act of violence or an act that results in violence. Divorce is not a loving act and it's not a, a peaceful act. There were cases in which divorce was allowed in the Bible, but even in these situations, Jesus teaches, as we saw in the, the scripture reading that Lena read earlier, Jesus teaches that these were due to the hardness of heart of God's people. Even in Jesus' teaching on idolatry in the New, adultery in the New Testament, divorce is allowed, but being allowed and being encouraged are two different things. Instead, God may choose to, to work his miracle of forgiveness and reconciliation and save that marriage. In our passage in Malachi this morning, there are no reasons given that the Israelite men are divorcing their wives. It simply seems that the Israelites want to divorce their wives. The Israelite men want to break the oneness that God designed marriage to be, and so God will not regard their offerings. The idea of God not accepting offerings by husbands because of how they treat their wives is continued in the New Testament with kind of a an idea along the same lines. In 1 Peter 3, verse 7, we read, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, if we as Christian husbands do not live with our wives in an understanding way, God might reject our prayers, just like he rejected the sacrifices of the Israelite men. That's a scary thought, but it's a good warning for husbands. God cares deeply about how we treat our wives. There's a repeated command here for the husbands of Israel, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. At that time in Israel's history, only men were able to divorce their spouses. Wives did not have the right to divorce their husbands. But in our day and age, women also may be initiating divorce. And so this warning and command can, can be applied to both husbands and wives today. At the same time, some of the burden and weight of these warnings still may apply more to husbands today. Even in today's society, the divorced wife will often be in a more vulnerable place than the, the divorced husband. And the husband's call to sacrifice himself for his wife has not changed. But how is it that we might have the strength to, to guard ourselves in the spirit and not be faithless? And I just think, brothers and sisters, if, if God did not give us a new spirit, if God did not change our hearts first, we would be just as vulnerable to temptations to sin as anyone else in this city, in this world. But God showed his faithfulness to his people. As we think on guarding ourselves in our spirit and not being faithless, let's first remember the one who was faithful to us and who gave us a new spirit. In stark contrast to the unfaithfulness of God's people, 
God always has pursued his people in love. The prophet Hosea gives us a picture of Israel prostituting herself with other nations, and yet God still redeems her back. God's bride Israel left him to run after other men, to prostitute herself with other gods, and yet God still bought her back. God still set his love on her. The image of God's love for his people is the image of a faithful husband towards his wife as continued in the New Testament. We think of Ephesians 5 and how a marriage is meant to picture Jesus' self-sacrificial love towards his bride, the church. So our earthly marriages are, are meant to be a picture of something greater, a picture of Jesus and the church. And so to the single Christians in the congregation, you're already part of the greater marriage. You're already part of Christ's bride, the church. Our human marriages will end at death, but the marriage of Christ and his church will continue on for eternity. And Jesus will always be faithful to his covenant with the church. And if you're here today visiting and you're not a Christian, and this idea of God's love towards you sounds appealing to you, I would be happy to talk with you more after the service. Other believers here, other members of this church would be happy to talk with you more about this as well. All of us were sinners. All of us were unfaithful to God, and yet God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and to rise again from the dead for our sins. Jesus paid the penalty for us, and now we await the hope of his return. We await the hope of the second coming of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is good news for us. Without this good news, without the gospel, we would not be able to obey God's command here. But with God's Spirit living inside us, with the example of Jesus Christ to look towards, and with our loving Father hearing our prayers, we're strengthened to be obedient to what God has to say to his people. And God's command to the Israelites in Malachi's time was to guard themselves in their spirit and not be faithless. And that is God's command that we must take heed to today as well. When we think of guarding ourselves and our spirit, we're thinking of protecting our hearts, protecting our deepest desires from sin. I think it's safe to say that for Christians who have had a divorce, the divorce didn't happen overnight. It began with a lack of the guarding of the spirit from one or both the husband and the wife. This lack of guarding of the spirit may have led to falling into certain sin that deeply hurt the spouse. It may have led to unfaithfulness in the form of pornography addiction or adultery. Or perhaps a, a lack of love led to argument after argument that led to one spouse wanting out of the marriage. And so we need to guard ourselves in our spirit from the very beginning. And if our marriages seem to be going well, we still need to keep watch. We still need to keep on guard. Being on guard is an active thing. We're awake and alert. We're watching where the enemy might try to attack our marriages. And remember that we do this not only for the sake of our spouse, but most importantly, for the sake of God and God's honor. We got our spirits in order to honor the covenant that we made with our spouse in the sight of God. The second aspect of this command is that we must not be faithless. It would be helpful for us not to simply think of avoiding faithlessness, but of pursuing faithfulness. In other words, we must be faithful to our spouse and continue in that faithfulness. So what does that look like? What does it mean to be faithful to our spouse. This is also active. Just as God is faithful to his people, we're to be 
faithful to our spouse. Just as God shows love and patience and kindness, we're to show love and patience and kindness. Just as God shows a pursuing love when his spouse is wayward, we're to show a pursuing love when our spouse sins. So for those of you who are married, consider what it would look like for you to grow in faithfulness to your spouse. Perhaps ask a couple who has been married longer than you have at WSBC ways they seek to continue in faithfulness towards each other. And perhaps have a conversation soon with your spouse as well, talking about what may be ways that you could encourage one another in your faithfulness towards one another. In a world in which divorce is widely accepted as a normal part of life, may God's church be filled with shining examples of faithful marriages that stand in contrast to what the world values. May our churches be filled with faithful marriages that remain united, for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Even when it might not make sense to the world, let's be people who are fully committed to faithfulness in our marriages. And may that be a taste to those around us of how God is faithful to us. And when death parts us or if Jesus returns before then, we, as the church, will be pure and ready for our bridegroom. And what a glorious day that will be. So does God have something to say in regards to who we marry? Yes, and yes. Yes, in this life, and yes, in the eternal marriage with Jesus Christ that awaits his bridegroom, the church. We as the church are meant to be the spotless bride of Christ, our lives on earth are preparation for that wedding day. Jesus has set his love upon us. Jesus will always be faithful to us. And Jesus is continuing to grow us in holiness. And that is our hope. It's a sure hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you for how he took our sins on himself on the cross. We thank you for how he he rose from the dead, how he has victory over the grave. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. Lord, we, we do pray that you will grow us in faithfulness, that you grow us in holiness. Lord, would we, would we as a church grow in our love for Christ? And would we spur one another on in our love for Christ? Lord, we, we thank you for your, your word and how it, how it teaches us, how it rebukes us, how it strengthens us to, to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.